My name is Susan Schofield. I'm the secretary, the school secretary here at the LSE. And it is my huge pleasure to invite you all to um, our panel for tonight's event. We're delighted once again to be hosting this prize-giving event uh, for the LSE First Story Creative Writing Competition. It's part of the, the literary festival at the school, which actually took place at the start of the month. And we think here that creative writing is really an important skill for, for students to have in higher education, no matter which subject you choose to study. I am absolutely delighted to see so many young faces here in the audience. And I would say this, wouldn't I, but I hope that your visit to the school this evening may inspire you to consider applying to come and study here. So... Um, this is the sixth creative writing competition we've held as part of the, the Literary Festival, and the fourth in conjunction with First Story. Um, it was my first time last year, and it's really nice to meet old friends again this time. Um, for those of you who don't know, uh, First Story is a charity um, working to support and inspire creativity, literacy and talent in UK schools and their communities. And they arrange and pay for acclaimed authors to run weekly creative writing workshops um, for groups of up to about 21 students in challenging secondary schools across the country. Um, in a moment, I'm going to hand over to Katie, Katie Waldegrave, who's the executive director of First Story. She's going to be chairing tonight's event. Um, but the most important thing I've got to do is to invite you to join us after the event outside the theatre um, for a reception where there will also be copies of our panellists' books on sale. So please, please don't run away. Come and join us. Katie. Over to you. Thank you, Susan. Well, um, can you hear me? Fantastic. It's lovely to see you all, and it's lovely to be here at LSE again. Um, so, just a little bit, because I don't know if everyone is at a first story school. Essentially, um, first story is just as we, we put some writers, these are two of the writers, Laura's over there, there's probably somebody else we haven't spotted, um, put writers into schools and work with some of you who are here today. And one of the exciting things I think that we do is have this competition. And this book here, Reflections, is the result of some of the best writing that was entered into this competition. Competition. But I should say we had hundreds of entries of incredibly high quality. And I want to thank everyone who entered, uh, and especially to congratulate the winners. I'm afraid that the, uh, the, the prize-winning, the prize-giving part is going to be the end of this. So there's a certain amount of, of tension while, while we go through, while we wait. But before that, and most interestingly this evening, we're going to have this uh, a debate, a panel conversation about, about writing with some esteemed authors who I'm going to introduce in a second. Um, but we're going to be running this competition again next year, and in fact, we think it's going to be even better, bigger, and more glamorous. So watch this space. We'll send you details. But if you've entered this year, whether you've been successful or not, please enter again and tell your friends to, because it's going to be really exciting. So... Um, 
without further ado, um, the people on the panel here that you see were the judges for this year's competition. Um, and they are going to be, the theme that we're talking about this evening is how much of themselves people put into, into their writing. It's often a question writers are asked, you know, to what extent is it all made up or is it imagination? And it's something I know that you have, in first story groups, as of your own first story, have talked about with your writers. To what extent should it be completely fantastic and what extent is it all in you? Um, and I should just warn you that at the end of the, the panels, each person on the panel is going to give a little brief, uh, little sort of speech, a little setting the stage conversation about what they think is the answer to the question, how much of themselves is in their writing. And then we're going to ask you to do a very short writing exercise, everybody, young and old. Uh, so I'll just give you a little bit of warning about that. That's why you should have paper and pen. So, I'm going to introduce um, our first speakers. I'll give you a little biography in a minute, but just going from left to right, we've got James Dawson, Kate <laughs> Kingsley, Geraldine McCorkran, and John Robinson. Hi. Uh, James is going to start by setting out what he thinks. Uh, <laughs> James is the author of some very dark teen thrillers, including Hollow Pike and Cruel Summer. He'll tell you a little bit more about himself, I'm sure, because of the nature of this question. But he is also, very excitingly for us, first story writer in residence, has been for how many years now? Three. Two. 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 Just made such an impact. And he does all sorts of work with all kinds of charities as well in education including stuff about anti-bullying, yes. all sorts of brilliant things. So, over to you. How much of yourself is there in what you write? Um, can you hear me all right? Do I need to swivel this away from Kate? <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't listen to her. Um, hi, uh, my name's James. Um, if it's all right, Katie, I was, would like to read a very little section of my book from last year, which is called Cruel Summer, um, because Ryan, the main character... He sort of ended up being a version of me with a narcissistic personality disorder, <laughs> or as some people would say, me. <laughs> so um, I'm going to read you a very, very short section, and then I'll tell you a bit about how Ryan came about. Katie, not you, it's a character in the book. <laughs> Carry on. Katie, what do you think really happened to Janie? The first line is a voiceover. <coughs> Opening shot. Pan from endless, star-spattered sky to a linear and deserted stretch of road in the middle of the Spanish countryside. You can tell it's Spain because of the arid landscape, chatter of crickets and accompanying overture of flamenco guitars. The vista is barren, almost alien. It's late at night. Slivers of wispy cloud trail over a jaundiced, sickly moon. Zoom in on a lonely silver rental car. It's caked in thick orange dust as it pelts along the asphalt. The headlights, even on high beam, only managed to cast a feeble pool of light along the abandoned highway. The road was rod straight. To Ryan, this really was the road to nowhere. He suddenly felt a long way from home. Come on in, latecomers. <laughs> everybody, let's get right, everybody, you ready? Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, she'll just wait for, for our latecomers. <laughs> I uh... <laughs> are we in? We're in. We're fine. Welcome. Just doing, just doing a reading. 
To Ryan, this really was the road to nowhere. He suddenly felt a long way from home. Ryan Hayward returns for a feature-length holiday special. Ryan often imagined his life as a long-running TV show in which he, of course, was the star. The high school series had come to an end with Janie's death, and the last year had been his own solo spin-off, Ryan, the drama school years, or possibly Ryan acting up. This holiday was supposed to be a summer special, a ratings-winning reunion of the original cast, Ryan, one year on. It was pretty sick, but what happened to Janie had made quite the series finale. He knew it was wrong, but thinking of it all as a TV show, with himself and his friends as famous actors, made it all easier somehow. Janie wasn't dead, she was just some actress whose contract was up. What do you mean? His companion, Katie, was a pretty redhead with alabaster skin, almost luminous in the dark. Oh, come off it, you know what I mean. I don't understand. Katie wrinkled her nose. She... difficult pause. She killed herself. Ryan put his feet on the dashboard. The night was sauna dry, that wave of hot Spanish air that greets you as soon as you step off the plane. His bare legs stuck to the leatherette seats, and he popped a duty-free sweet in his mouth. What, and you believe that? Katie grabbed a sweet too. Must we talk about Janie Ryan? Maybe we could pick a more cheerful subject, like vivisection or famine or something. She focused on the road ahead, gripping the wheel a little tighter. When someone young and beautiful dies, a shroud falls over a community. The sun had stopped shining altogether on Telscombe Cliffs when Janie Bradshaw vanished. It felt as though there was a blanket ban on laughter, and was no one was even allowed to say her name except in reverence. You certainly weren't allowed to ask questions. But Ryan had questions. We'll stop there. So, yeah. Oh. Thanks. So, yeah, initially Ryan was meant to be just the sidekick. Um, I know it's obviously a bit of a cliche, but having the, the sort of the sassy gay best friend is kind of a bit of a trope in young adult fiction, in that you have your pretty main girl, the new Bella Swan kind of girl who arrives in the town, and the book's always about her. And initially, for a really long time in Cruel Summer, the main character was supposed to be Katie, the nice red-haired girl next door with pretty alabaster skin and the doomed relationship. But as the book went along, I realised that Ryan's voice, partly my voice, was, was much, much stronger. And eventually it was actually my editor who said, how would you actually feel about making Ryan the narrator? Because his crazy, skewed way of seeing the world, as if he was living in his own version of The O.C. or Pretty Little Liars, made it just so much more interesting and so much more weird. Um, and also, I'll give you a hint, every single one of the characters in Cruel Summer is lying from the get-go. None of them are telling the truth. So that made the fact that he lives in a fantasy world made it really easy to play with you as a reader as well and see what I could get away with in terms of trickery. And I'll give you a clue, Janie did not kill herself. <laughs> Surprise. Um, but then a lot of people, when, especially people who know me when they've read the book, they say, oh, you're totally Ryan. But then I have to tell them, well, yeah, that's true, but I'm also Alicia, who is a mixed-race Caribbean girl with a drink problem. I'm also Greg, a professional football player. I'm also Katie, the pretty alabaster girl with the red hair. I'm also Ben, the nerdy science Cambridge student. And they look at me as if I'm insane. But the thing is, whether I'm writing Alicia or Ryan, I've only ever got my experience of being human 
to tap on. I've never been anybody else. So when you're putting a character in a situation, be they black, white, rich, poor, gay, straight, male or female, I can still only be me as a writer and I can only really do so much research before you have to think if there's a scarecrow mask wearing psychopath coming at you with a knife, which is what happens in the book, how would I react? And, and in the end, kind of Alicia does half of the narration with Ryan. And so I still had to think... Well, I've, I've never been a girl, I've never been mixed race, but, you know, how, how would any of us react when a scarecrow mask-wearing psychopath comes at us with a knife? And you just have to hope your experience of a human, plus the research you've done, hopefully add up to make a believable character, and then you just hope for the best. But, I mean, the one I get all the time is, you know, what, how do you write girl characters? And I sort of say, well, I think taking a big assumption there that you know male and female people are even different in the get-go and also that again that same thing if if we can't all understand what it is to be human i don't think you know i'd, I'd be stuck writing fairly middle-class white gay men till the end of time i'd be writing ryan forever and i, I like to think that it's actually part of my job is to look beyond the experience that just i have and try and understand what other people's shoes would be like as well if you're thinking of questions as you hear James's brilliant talk or anybody else's, make a note of them, store them up, and we're going to have a chance to ask questions at the end. Um, I'm going to introduce Kate Kingsley now. You may well have used, some of you have read her incredible series, Young, Loaded and Fabulous, which is a very glamorous series of novels, if you haven't, do. Likewise, I think you have an opportunity to buy Cruel Summer and all the other books at the end of this. Um, quick play. Ching, ching. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I get to now start on a whole new series. That's right, I think, isn't it? Yeah, but I'm writing a new book, that. but it's not really a series. It's yeah. just, I'll talk about it a little. Fantastic. Over to you, Kate. Thanks. Hi, um, I'm Kate. I recognise some faces here. Hello. And hi to everyone who I don't recognise. Um, I just wanted to follow on a little bit from what James just said um, about him being all the characters in his books. I actually, um, when I was first starting to write fiction, I decided that being a fiction writer is a little bit like being an actor or an actress, but you have to play all the parts. So you have to put yourself into every single person's psyche, into their brain, and sort of think what they might do in every situation. And so I think that being a writer is very difficult in that way. Um, but at the same time, as, as James also said, the human experience doesn't vary that much from person to person, I think. Like, the emotions that we feel um, are the same. Like, we all know what it's like to feel hope, joy, grief despair, anger, and I think that's how you get into a character's head, whether they're a man or a woman or gay or straight, um, and make them seem real. So when I first started writing, um, I was asked to write a book about uh, very posh people at British boarding school. And as you might be able to tell from my accent, I am half American, and I did not go to boarding school. And I thought, how am I going to do this? This is crazy. And the publisher said to me, we, we want to name your series Young, Loaded, and Fabulous. And I was like, oh, God, am I going to have to sort of become this like young, loaded, and fabulous person? Um, and at first, I um, decided that what I was going to do was interview all my friends who'd been to boarding school which was sort of a handful of people, and just base the characters on them, which I quickly realized was a huge mistake because I started um, describing characters and people would read little bits of my book and be like, uh, is that me? And I'd be like, no, um, even though it obviously was. And then I have a friend with a great last name, so I decided, oh, I'm going to steal her last name and name one of the main characters that. And I told her, thinking she'd be really thrilled, and she was like, 
no, like <laughs> you are not allowed to. I was like, why not? She's like, no way. Um, and I sort of gradually realized um, that when you're writing, you can take experience from life, but it's important not to take too much. Um, like, I, I would never base a character on just one person. So, uh, for example, like in my first book, the main character ended up being called Alice. So my sister went to boarding school, and she was bullied by a girl named Alice. And I decided, okay, that's the one time I'm going to steal someone's name and make the mean main character give it the name of this real-life bully. But everything else about this character is very careful. Like, they don't have the same appearance, they don't have the same last name, anything like that. And um, so I think it's important to make sure um, that you're kind of infusing your characters with your own experience as well as um, basing it on real people. Um, The other thing that I would say also about the idea of putting your own experience into writing is... um, going back to what I was talking about before, the idea of the human experience not really varying that much from person to person. Um, I want to just think about like a few really popular young adult series that maybe you guys have read. So there's Harry Potter, not necessarily young adult, but for younger maybe. Um, there's The Fault in Our Stars, which is a book about teenagers who are suffering from cancer. Um, there's Divergence, which is kind of a new series, which is about kids in post-apocalyptic Chicago. Now, these are like three extremely different series. So Harry Potter is about a boy wizard trying to avenge the death of his parents. Um, the Fault in Our Stars is about teenagers falling in love while they're dying of cancer. And Divergent is about this girl who doesn't fit into society and has to figure out some way of surviving. Um, They're all, like, extremely popular books. And I would say, whatever you're writing about, whether it's teenagers dying of cancer or a boy wizard, the things that you need to do is infuse your characters and infuse your stories with the true emotions and the truth of what it is to be a human. So you've got, um, in all of them, Harry Potter knows what it's like to be grieving for his parents. The teenagers in The Fault in Our Stars know what it's like to be grieving for each other and for the lives they're probably going to lose quite soon. The girl in Divergent knows what it's like to be grieving for her... I'm not going to give it away, but there's someone close to her dies in the book. Um, And so whatever you're writing, whatever you're reading, I think it's important to um, keep an eye on what it is that makes us human and the emotions that we have in common with each other and um, focus on those things. Thank you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to hear now from Geraldine McGorkin, who is one of the country's most successful young people's writers, writers full stop, I should say. There's pretty much no prize that you haven't won, I, as far as I can tell, and most of them several times. So it's an honour to have you, and Nothing thank late. you. <laughs> Sorry? Nothing late. <laughs> Um, Over to you. How much of yourself? How much of myself? Um, Well, nothing at all. I I, I always thought when I when I um, I wanted to be like Peter Ustinov and have lots of relations. I don't even know who Peter Ustinov is, but he's a fantastic raconteur. But he also happened to have relations in pretty pretty much every country in the world who were all influential people. He knew everybody there was to know. He was phenomenally clever. And I thought, yeah, well, if I was like Peter Ustinov, I'd have a lot of material to write about, and people would be interested. But as it is, I'm suburban little me, very timid, very shy, very inarticulate, 
I'm all right when I'm writing, but I've got nothing really to write about. What could I write about? So no, I didn't put me into the book because I couldn't get away from me fast enough. <laughs> I was intent on becoming somebody else, and that's why I took up writing. Because as soon as you step into a book, you step into the shoes of your hero or your heroine. And you can be anybody. You can be whoever you like. And you can invest yourself with all of those qualities that you would like to have. It's wish fulfillment. So I would become, instead of being very slow thinking and not very bright, I would become um, ingenious and brave and uh, quick-witted and uh, immensely popular and incredibly beautiful or whatever, or a horse, which I, <laughs> I, I spent a great deal of my time being a horse. Um, so it, it, I wanted to, and, uh, and oddly enough, articulate. Now, it wasn't that I didn't have the words, it's just that they arrived in my brain extremely slowly. Uh, so when I was writing, I was able to write down what I was thinking. And it didn't matter how long you took about it. Also, I discovered this implausible, implausibly secret garden-type key to a lock in the middle of my brain. And... Once I used this key, I could slide, as through Stargate, into the other side of my brain. You know, we all have two sides to the brain, you know, the other side that's creative and the side that's mathematical. Well, I sure as hell wasn't mathematical. Um, and when I, was, it's, when I slid through into my imagination, into the other half of my brain, I could create things. I could create stories, settings, characters, of which I had no comprehension at all, really. No, uh, I hadn't met them. I, I, I hadn't been to any of the places that I wrote about. Yes, I did research. After a while, I did research, because I discovered how brilliant it is and how much easier it makes writing, because uh, there's such good stuff out there, especially the past. I went to the past. What do I know about the present? I didn't know about the present. You need to know lots and lots of people. You also need to remain 17 if you're going to know about the present. Um, <laughs> And I'm, 60, I'm 62 now, so there's a big gulf between me and the people I supposedly write for. Um, so I write a lot about the past, because the past is common to everybody. It does, that doesn't change. Everyday life changes, but the past doesn't. And I, write, I aim to write about the truth, which also doesn't change. Now, this is immensely selfish. Should I not be concentrating on what my readers want to read about? Well, the only way I can really work out what my readers want to read about is to go to sales, the sales of other people's books. And it would tell me that what I ought to write about is zombies and knickers and stinks and bogeys and vampires and explosions and, yeah... Generally speaking, things I do not know or want to know much about. So, no, shan't, won't, and more importantly, can't, don't know how. The only thing I can do is the kind of story that I, the, go, the voyage that I want to go in, in my imagination. And that is immensely selfish. And writing is, most writers are immensely selfish because they write about what interests them. Yes, I've written a book, White Darkness, which was 
actually about what it was like when I was a teenager. And, and when I wrote it, I was a teenager again, and it was lovely because I rediscovered how it felt to be in love and how it felt to have uh, an imagination that was better than the real world and therefore to choose to live in it. And, how to, uh, and, and re I remembered about obsession and all of those things that are so extraordinarily hot, vivid, dangerous, um, obsessive when you're, when you're a teenager. It gets, it gets more sedate later on. Your imagination gets sedate. Who wants to be sedate? I don't want. So, so I'll climb inside my head and be someone much more like you. Um, stories make us into our fellow men. Uh, so I've enjoyed reading quite a lot about, uh, finding out quite a lot about my fellow men, chiefly on the grounds of climbing inside their skin and looking out of their eyes and feeling with their hands and smelling with their noses and hearing with their ears. And it tells you a lot. Mostly it tells you to be tolerant of people incredibly unlike yourself because you can always find a reason to like them when you're living inside them. Can't really fail to. It makes for a judging dilemma, though. I have to say, it did make for a judging dilemma because I didn't know what you were doing when you were writing for your stories. Um, I didn't know. I, I, I wanted to... I found myself asking, under what circumstances was this written? Was this written as a, as a directive from a teacher? Write, write me a story about such and such. Or did this come from a burning inner need to express something dreadful that had happened to you? And should I be running to the foot of a tall building with my arms outstretched ready to catch you rather than, rather than just reading what lovely, what lovely writing you did as a result of being completely suicidal? You know? <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, but yes, but then uh, the more I thought about it, I thought, yeah, of course, you're doing exactly what I'm doing. You're climbing into the other side of your head where anything is possible. Thank you. Thank you so much, Geraldine. And finally, I'm going to introduce John Robinson, who um, is whose first novel, Nowhere, has been published to great acclaim just last. <coughs> It was uh, July 2013. Yeah. So again, along with my books from everybody, it will be on sale later and go read it if you haven't. Um, and how about you? How much of you is there? Well, being me being me, I've actually prepared a little speech for you all about um, reflections and, and what I've included in myself in my writing. And some of it's quite personal, so it's actually been quite um, interesting for me to, to come up with this. So I'll just um, I'll get started. When I heard the topic for discussion was what do writers include of themselves in their writing, I thought, you know, this is a really interesting question. But the trouble is, for me, as a member of the panel and a speaker, is I'm not sure it's that much, if anything at all. My friends and colleagues would say I'm definitely an extrovert. I don't think I've ever been described as shy by anyone who knows me well. But what's really funny is when it comes to writing, I'm the complete opposite. Any time I've found something sneaking into a story that sounds a little bit too much like me, I've changed it or removed it altogether. My ethos has always been, don't let yourself get in the way of your writing. For me, the most important thing is the story, and that includes the ideas, the questions that it hopefully provokes, the themes and the characters. 
By letting too much of myself in, I feel like I'm almost contaminating the story. And so I've always tried my very best to keep my opinions and my experiences out of my writing as much as possible. But then I thought maybe it isn't as simple as that. Is it really possible for creation to be free of its creator? Perhaps there are reflections of me, things that had slipped beneath my conscious awareness and into my stories without me even noticing. So I decided to have a quick look back at some of my old novels and see what, if anything, I might have unconsciously revealed about myself. Nowhere was published by Puffin in 2013, but until then it had taken me the best part of a decade to get a novel published. One of my many unpublished novels was set just after the Second World War. It's about a young soldier who's been sent home from battle and he's suffering with anxiety and insomnia. Not having a family or job or being separated from the rest of his squadron. He feels lost and quite helpless until he becomes in a very bizarre mystery surrounding a fellow soldier. This mystery, which actually turns out to be quite dangerous, actually gives him meaning and purpose. Looking back at that novel now, I remember that I too had suffered with insomnia and quite bad anxiety in my late teens. <laughs> Unlike many of my friends, I didn't go to university, so I also felt very, very separated from everyone and a little bit without purpose. So it's quite clear to me reading this story that I was writing with these experiences firmly in mind. In another unpublished novel, the hero again is a young man around my age who doesn't know his father and goes on a quest to find him. At the time, I thought this just made for a really interesting story, but now I see the obvious symmetry of my own life, because I never knew my father as well. Even now, the only thing I know about him is his first name, and I could have walked past him on a street, um, he could have held a door open for me, and we wouldn't know each other. This is something that I think I was unconsciously trying to resolve in this story. But then throughout my 20s, I got a bit more experienced. I moved away from writing about young men similar to me, of a similar age, similar background, going through psychological and emotional dilemmas. Um, I wrote one novel, a short novel, from the perspective of a woman in her 60s, another novel about a university lecturer who's in a really unhappy marriage and has an affair with another woman. As my fiancé is in the audience tonight, I just want to assert that this is definitely not based on me at all. <laughs> so it seems that not everything I've written has featured these very obvious echoes of myself. But as my examples have shown, there are clearly some, and I think I've noticed the pattern. It seems that in my teens and my early 20s, when I was at my most self-conscious, my writing was at its most self-conscious and most reflective. By the time I finished Nowhere, the first book in the trilogy for young people, I've been writing for quite a long time. The story is about a group of teenagers who are captured and held in a bizarre prison in the middle of a forest, apparently because they're all dangerous, violent criminals. In reality, they haven't done anything wrong. There are six main characters, boys and girls of varying ages and backgrounds. The reason for their imprisonment, which is revealed in the sequel Anywhere, which comes out this year, is quite sinister and surreal with elements of sci-fi and fantasy. So naturally, it was very hard for me to see any echoes of myself in such a high-concept story, one that was totally different to anything I'd written previously. But then I gradually started to notice things. The same motifs that I've discussed before had snuck into the story without me being aware. Absent fathers, characters looking for meaning, looking for an identity. One character becomes obsessed with flipping a coin over and over and over. This is definitely me talking. 
I've spent most of my life fascinated and repelled by randomness, which I think is symbolised by the flipping of the coin. I've always been unable for, for whatever reasons, but any successes I've ever had down to anything but chance, just being in the right place at the right time. On a second look, even the permanent wintry setting of the novel possibly reflects an unfortunate event in my childhood when I was hit by a car and spent the winter um, months bedridden, gazing out of a hospital window at the bare trees, snow-covered trees outside. And I felt a bit like a prisoner at the time. And I think this helplessness and this claustrophobia that I felt was the unconscious influence for a group of teenagers who were locked away from the world without having done anything wrong. This had to be the inspiration for the story, didn't it? But it wasn't. A few weeks ago, while I was preparing for this speech, it hit me. It was obvious where I'd gotten the idea from, and I couldn't believe that I'd forgotten about it until now. Blocked it from my memory. Seven years before I'd started writing Nowhere, I was with some work colleagues on a night out in the local pub. One of my colleagues brought her partner, a man that I have not met before. At some point in the night, he and another man in the pub got involved in an argument and were both told to leave. What nobody anticipated was that this other man got on the phone and called up his friends. And ten minutes later, there was a gang of about 20 very angry people outside surrounding him. The two bouncers on the door of the pub were trying to hold them off, but they were completely overwhelmed and deluged by this sea of flailing fists. I could see my colleague's partner in the middle of this chaos, trying to get himself free. Fortunately, he did somehow. Several of the group chased after him, and terrified that he might end up in hospital or far worse, I also ran after to try and break up the ensuing fight, without thinking of the consequences. When I caught up with them on the next road, a few of the group had already grabbed him. I yelled for them to get off, and before I knew it, someone had tackled me from behind and I was laying with my face against the cold gravel, pinned to the floor. Naturally, my first instinct, and I think this would be a lot of people's first instinct, was to try and wriggle free. But I felt someone climb onto my back, and then someone else. I shouted, turning left and right frantically, expecting to feel a boot crashing against my skull any minute. But it was only when I felt the cold metal of the handcuffs slipping around my wrists that I stopped wriggling. Myself and four others, including my colleague's partner, the man who'd been assaulted outside the pub, were arrested and put in the back of a police car. The other 15 or so people who turned up outside the pub to beat him up all escaped scot-free. <laughs> I shouted, I was trying to stop him getting beaten up. A gang of about 20 people attacked him. You resisted arrest, said the police officer solemnly. But you tackled me from behind, I splurted. I thought you were part of the gang. Well, you shouldn't have struggled, he answered, and looked away, and the conversation was over. I don't think I've ever felt so embarrassed and so frustrated in all my life, and I pleaded my story again and again and again, but it felt like I was just wasting my breath. I yelled, this is like something out of a Kafka novel, hoping the literary reference might show them I was a reader of books. <laughs> Sensitive and placid, and not the yob that, I, that they believed I was. Huh? said the man next to me. <laughs> I had to spend a night in a cell, which is a truly, truly unpleasant, miserable experience. I'm sure we've all thought about being captive somewhere, but actually being in a room that you're not allowed to leave, no matter how much you want to, is something else altogether. It does something very, very primal to you. It evokes a very alarming, threatening claustrophobia. You're no longer a member of the public, 
you're a prisoner and there is a boundary that has been crossed there and it's very, very disturbing. The man in the cell next to mine was screaming at the top of his lungs and kicking or headbutting the wall. I couldn't quite tell which. I couldn't sleep, so I sat on the floor and meditated until I was allowed to call my mum. <laughs> this was an absolutely terrifying phone call to make. My mum answered groggily and her voice just disintegrated into an, oh no, when I told her I was in a cell. And the disappointment in her voice was the worst part, far worse than actually if she'd been angry with me. When I told her what had happened, she actually seemed quite relieved. She said, I'm proud of you. I raised you to do the right thing. Just recently I heard about a boy who was attacked by a group and everyone just stood there watching and staring. You did the right thing. Eventually the charges against me were dropped as ultimately I hadn't really done anything wrong. It was basically a misunderstanding and I'd just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it took a lot of questioning, a lot of stress and a lot of frustration. Nevertheless, the encounter affected me very, very deeply and I became extremely angry and cynical and untrusting. Until now, I've not actually spoken much about this, so if any of my friends at home listen to the podcast, it'll be the first time a lot of them find out as well. Um, One of the reasons I've not really spoken much is because I'm ashamed. And I've also been trying to forget this, because it wasn't a good encounter by any means. But obviously the experience has haunted me enough for me to fictionalise it and use it as a concept of a novel all of these years later without even realising that I was actually just remembering. Perhaps if I hadn't had this experience and turned it into a piece of fiction, I may have never had a novel published. I may still be a struggling writer and I wouldn't be here now. If there is something to be said here, it's not that you shouldn't make mistakes. We all will. It's that mistakes make far better muses than successes. Be aware of those pieces of yourself that you regret, those experiences and those flaws, and turn them into positives through the alchemy of fiction, and you and your writing will be much stronger for it. Thank you. John and everybody for incredibly thoughtful, engaging, interesting, this, this sort of agreement about the, the traits of yourself in there. But then I like your that word alchemy, the kind of mixing of, of things that creates something that is then completely new and fascinating for all of us to hear. While you are pondering what questions you might want to put so we can have a bit of a debate and a discussion, I have been charged with suggesting that we all leave here with our own small piece of something that could be either (laughs) fictional or not fictional, perhaps the beginning of a story. So, bear with me, take a risk. What I'd like you to all do, we've got a piece of paper, we can do it if we like to, is to write your name on the piece of paper, first name, second name, middle names if you want, And then I want you to look at your name once you've written it down. Think about it. Think about the look of it, the sound of it, what it means to you. So perhaps you actually know what it means. Perhaps you know why it was chosen. You named after somebody, for somebody. Was there a makeup? Was there a story behind why you were given your name? How do you feel about your name? Do you like your name? Do you always like your name? Do you wish you were called something else? Um... 
Do you have a story behind your name? Does it make you... Do you die strongly identify with your name? It's anything at all that you... When you really look at the words on the page in front of you... And I just want to give ourselves all three minutes, no more, three, four minutes, three minutes, let's say, to just write something, a couple of sentences. We're not going to complete a whole great story, but there might just be the beginning of a story. And then when we come to questions, if you'd like to... You don't have to ask a question. You could just tell us what you've written down or you can read what you've written down and then ask a question. So we're going to be very quiet, write our names and just write, are there any questions? Am I not clear? There's no right or wrong. It's just a piece of writing. Okay, we're kind of coming to the end of the sentence. It's a ridiculously short amount of time, but I'm willing to bet anyone in under age 18 has written something brilliant and the rest of us have been struggling and thinking, yikes. Um, and who knows, maybe in there is just one spark of a story that could become something, and that would be exciting. Uh, just so nobody feels nervous, any of the panellists willing to read out what you've written? Uh, yeah, Josh, can I start? Well, I was originally going to be called David, and my mum told her friend this, and she had a kid first, and she called her son David, which actually is... Um, that's, there's some conflict there, I think, how this other person has stolen the name. Um, then I was actually named John because... Um, there was a character in a television show she fancied, <laughs> which is a bit weird, I think. <laughs> That's your mum fancied. Geraldine, what did you write? Um, the courtroom. I only married it. <laughs> <laughs> if we could choose our names as authors, strictly speaking, can, what would I have gone with? Jones, the one I was born with? Hardly. The archetypally common name? No. Something that people would remember. Something charged with associations of excitement and delight. Something taxi drivers would recognise. <laughs> Brilliant. I um, don't Katie Wargrave. I feel a little guilty. I ought to be Katie Banerjee. My mother-in-law hates that I haven't changed my name, but I own Walgrave. It's my father and grandfather and Somerset and belonging to a kind of clan, and somehow I can't be- be- bring myself to become Mrs. Banerjee. <laughs> um, I've got Catherine, because my full name is Catherine. Uh, I hate it. Um, when I was at school... Um, six girls out of a class of 40 were called Catherine so that's more than one in eight and actually on this panel two out of five people are called Catherine because Katie's real name is Catherine I just asked her to check (laughs) so it's really annoying Um, so yeah and at school all the other girls called Catherine I thought were much prettier than me so I was automatically put into this group of people who I was like involuntarily connected with and did not want to have anything to do with (laughs) Um, very annoying uh, how did I get my name? According to my parents, I was meant to be a boy and I was meant to be called Doug. <laughs> <laughs> I love how there are all these stories emerging, even just through the name. Yeah. I went in a different direction, you'll be surprised. Um, <laughs> hmm. J is for jumper, so woolly and blue. A is for apple, all squashed up as goo. M is for monkey, sat in a tree. E is for exemplary episodes of glee. S is for secrecy, shame, seclusion, solemn, sadness and self. Okay, so now we move on to the part of the evening which is all about you and a conversation, really. So what I'd like to invite you to do is to ask any question at all, specifically, of course, about how much of yourself you've been your writings or any questions but also if you'd be willing to share your little stories your pieces about your name so 
There are roving microphones, so just hold on and wait if you put your hand up. Anybody got anything they want to either say or ask? Or anybody willing to read their piece about their name to get us going? Hey, thank you. Completely humiliate the students I brought with me. Yes, thank you. That's weird. Um, right, I'm going to do the name thing. Um, my full name is Michelle Francis Bailey. I hate Michelle. It's too feminine, too pretty, but I don't like it. So I've shortened myself to Mitch, which is my own. It's mine. It's unusual. Um, everyone will remember that. Francis, my brother, named me. So um, they asked him when he was four, what would you like your baby sister to be called? And he said, Auntie Francis, which was his play school teacher. So I got labelled with that. And then um, Bailey, I always find interesting, because you mentioned about heritage and identity. Both of... uh, So it's obviously my dad's family name, and both of his parents were adopted, so we don't actually belong to the Bailey family. We have no heritage. It doesn't belong to me. I have no identity, no... You know, it's untraceable, we're lost, we don't know who we are, where we came from. So I find that quite thought-provoking, really, in that we don't really know where we came from or who we are. Thank you so much for sharing that. Anyone else have a burning question you want to know about writing? (laughs) Hi, um, I was wondering, um, in, like, your period of writing... Do you become kind of lost in that character and then some of your identity is kind of sweeping away, in a way? Maybe, mainly for Geraldine. Um, so in those characters... It's a great question. Does your identity get sort of swept the other way into the character, Geraldine? Uh, my ability to relate with the rest of the world does. It takes me a while to emerge. <laughs> Scott Fitzgerald said it's like swimming... Un- writing is like swimming underwater holding your breath. It's very like being underwater because it takes you ages to get out. <laughs> um, and I do find it hard to emerge from a book, not particularly from a character, although, but more from a situation. So if it's a sad situation, then I'll tend to be sad for the rest of the day. It's a great question. Thank you. I don't know if anyone else wants to add. Yeah, I think I agree with Geraldine in that it's yeah, it's maybe not so much about you being the character, but it does slightly feel like you're spending time with friends. And when you're, especially I find into the last third of a book where you're really in the sort of home stretch, um, you become so boring because you're spending all your time with fictional people, and you sort of say to your friends or your partners, "Oh, you'll never guess what Alicia did today." I'm like <laughs> Alicia's fake, you massive insane person. And so yeah, it, it's it's strange you don't sort of lose yourself more as. I mean, you do, but it's perhaps a willing a willingness to lose yourself in amongst them. Yeah, I would say, like, in the later stages of writing, you almost become a shapeshifter, so you can sort of slip in and out of different characters. And if you're writing a, a novel from uh, the first-person point of view, so it's told in, I did this and I did that, um, then you're only really, like, inside one character. But if you're writing in the third person and you keep sort of switching into different characters, then you really do become a bit of a, like, yeah, shapeshifter who kind of inhabits different minds. And, you know, it's really important in books, I think, that each character has their own distinct personality. So they can't all just be you, because that would be really boring. Um, so, yeah, I would say I definitely get lost in the characters, and it depends sort of what person you're writing in when you're doing it. 
Any other questions? Do you really talk about your book after before you finish it? <laughs> I do, yeah. I I'm so sad. I, my, my whole life is these characters, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, I'm so superstitious about talking about the book. It's as if it will fall to pieces. Really? You just don't mention it at all. You don't... No, no, no. I, I, well, I don't know roughly what I'm doing, but, but you I wouldn't show it to anybody until it was finished. Oh, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't do that. I, nobody reads it, but I will sort of... Which makes it even more boring, isn't it? Because this is a book that people haven't even read yet. <laughs> this, this character you don't know about, you've never read about them, but you should definitely care. <laughs> My poor friends, I don't know why they put up with me, honestly. Oh, there's a question over here. Do you all have specific times when you write? Do you stick to schedules, or, or do you just have to write when the fancy takes you? I suppose you've got deadlines that you've got to meet, if nothing else. Who wants to answer that? Yeah, I um, I don't. I mean, I have. I just have to write whenever I get the chance, basically. Um, but the best thing I've discovered is earplugs because they are absolutely fantastic. I can literally just go into my own little world and just and write because I'm, I'm very distracted by sound. Um, I have tried the whole schedule thing, but I, it doesn't really work with me. So it's just whenever the mood takes me. Um, I have been known to write on the train going into work in the mornings, which is uh, quite an interesting experience. But then I get paranoid, people are looking over my shoulder and stuff. But it's really just whenever I can get the chance, really. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, a, a writer for television, a guy who writes Doctor Who called Toby Whithouse, I once went to see him talk, and he said, if you want writing to be your job, you should treat it like a job. And so when I was lucky enough to be able to write full-time, I sort of really stayed true to that, and I didn't just want to be a, a sort of a vampire who stayed in bed till six and then got up and wrote at night. So I do, I, I sort of write nine to five and sort of, I, I'll nip to the gym in the morning and stuff. But other than that, I do kind of keep office hours, really. It's always men that say that. <laughs> it is. It's always men, men who, could, who always, oh, well, I have a shed in the garden and I go in there and I, no, nobody's allowed to speak to me. No, no, they're not. They're cooking you dinner. <laughs> Taking take the dog from the walk over. Doing blasted emails. No, I used to have a schedule. I used to get... get Set down to. I wrote all my early books standing up commuting on a train in and out of London. Yes, you wrote in your head and then... It seemed so easy in those days, but now uh, I, I aim to have a. I, I had a schedule. It was lovely for just for a while. I'd take the girl to school and then I'd sit down and start work and I'd look at the clock and I'd think, oh my God, she's been standing in the playground for half an hour. <laughs> I've forgotten to go and collect her. But I was just completely absorbed. But now there's emails. There's all that stuff that comes in, and it's all more... In, in a civilised world, it's all more important to, to answer an email uh, about work than it is, or even from a friend, than it is to get down to work. So the concentration is absolutely shot to pieces. The only time I ever get any work done is if I don't get up in the morning and I can spread my books out on the bed. At the moment, this is all about noise, I have a house full of dehumidifiers and no carpets because <laughs> we were flooded. And noise, yes, it is actually, I have discovered the, position, the situation in which it is absolutely impossible to write. And that's when you've got a succession of, of insurance people and 17 dehumidifiers <laughs> You can't write. I'll enter some earplugs. <laughs> no, even, can, even noise cancelling earphones, nothing. Nothing works. Yeah. Nothing works. <laughs> Kate, do you have a schedule? Well, I'm with Geraldine. Like, I, schedules don't work for me, really. Like, sometimes I'll make a resolution at the beginning of the week. Like, I'm going to get up 
at 7.30, which is really early for me, and be at my desk by 8 and not look at my emails, not even eat breakfast. Um, and occasionally I will actually succeed in this uh, resolution. And then I'm so proud of myself that for like the next two weeks I ride on that wave of self-satisfaction um, and end up getting up at 10 all the rest of the morning. So, yeah, I... I don't know. I don't really. I don't believe that as a writer you can go with the whole um, only write when the spirit takes you. Because if you sit around waiting for the spirit to take you, it's just never going to come. You do need to like sit at your desk and like even if nothing comes, you just have to kind of sit there and write really rubbishy stuff until maybe you get one spark of inspiration. It's like when you're taking photographs. I think you can take a hundred photographs and maybe one will be good, but you still have to take the other ninety-nine in order to get the one good one. And I think that writing for me is a little bit like that. I, I sit at my desk for 100 hours and maybe get one good hour and that one good hour makes the 99 worth it. Thank you. Um, yes. My question is sort of related to the one before because it's also about the process of writing. I wonder how developed your plots are before you actually start writing. Like, how much is already in your heads, and um, do you start with that, or is it more you come up with maybe a character and then start developing those, and then the rest flows, or how do you do it? Anyone wants? So it's a question about how much of the plot is there before you begin writing, or does you sort of start and see what happens? Um, I, I always know how they're going to end, I think, sort of, especially because my first three... Yeah, the, the first three all have an element of murder mystery in, so certainly I knew who the murderer was because I had to sort of leave the clues along the way like, like breadcrumbs. But I always think the best bits of any of my books have been the books that I... have been the bits, the books, what? The bits that did just happen on the day. So, the, the, for me, the best bits are the bits that I didn't plan, but there is a skeleton to flesh out but it's a very skinny, patchy skeleton with weird bits like that. Are any of you very different to that? Or are you... well, there's, there's, there's a really good um, analogy, and it's that there are two different types of writers. There are gardeners and there are architects. The, the writer who's like an architect will have everything planned out from start to finish, and they have a, a very definite plot, whereas a gardener will just have some seeds and they'll let things grow, and they might trim things back or whatever or move things around a bit. But it's, it's a much more organic process. I think I am definitely a bit of a gardener. Like yourself, I know how things are going to end, but the, the bit in between is the, the interesting part. Of course, your editor wants you to be an architect, though. I, I did say to my editor once before, like, I, I, um, you know, I, I like to let things grow organically, and she said, no, you, you really must have a plot in place. So if, if they ask me, then I pretend. <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> Geraldine, are you an architect or a gardener? Oh, definitely a gardener. Philip Pullman is an architect. I've seen his um, plan, plans for the, uh, his dark materials. Um, and it's immaculate handwriting. Every chapter is planned out, exactly what he was going to put in every chapter. He knew before he started. And I thought, how did he ever get it written? Because it's so boring. Yeah. <laughs> What's going to happen next? You can't be in the... in Well, obviously Philip Pullman can, but uh, you can't be inside the head of your reader wanting to know what happens next. And the, the ideal way to write, you agree, is the fact that you want to know what happens next because you have to have a reason to turn over the page when you're reading and when you're writing. 
and and I would I the one, books I've had most fun with is where I really don't know where they're going. I usually have a picture in my head of the first page, what happens on the first page, what will grab attention, but uh, n not at all. Well, well, apart from land, sort of sort of signposts in the landscape, uh, all containing all my uh, research and so forth. But I really don't want to know what's going to happen to the hero, because it's got to take me by surprise if it's going to take you by surprise. The awful, awful thing is that I, that I have to go into schools and talk to children about, you know, doing good writing, and I'm in, delighting in undermining their teachers who say, you've got a plan. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're these poor kids, you know, they look completely bewildered because you go in and say, uh, you know, they say, do you plan? And you're supposed to say, yes, of course I plan. And they say, no, I never plan. And they go... Uh, why are we wasting all our time doing this planning? I think that's, that's, that's awful, really, because they are never, ever taught. Are you? That writing is organic? Like gardening? Yeah, are you taught to plan or. Generally? Oh, it's <laughs> up. Let's do, let's do a quick test now. Hands up if you are an architect. Hands up if you're a gardener. Architects are sexy as well. I'm going to call an architect. I'm not, I'm not, it's not like a bad thing, you know. So we've got more gardeners than architects. Okay. Oh, yeah. okay. I think we've probably, before we go on to the prize game, we've probably got one more question. I'd love it if there was a question from a young person or a student. You look, you look young enough to <laughs> I was. You were saying that um, you base characters on other people or maybe on yourselves, but even if it's a fictional character or someone you know, do you ever get so attached to the character that you don't want bad things to happen to them in your stories? Oh, that's a great question. question. Really good question. Um, who'd like to start? Sorry? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, yeah, um, I have become awfully, awfully fond of the main character in my new one. That's called Say Her Name. She's called Bobby. And she wasn't based on anyone. She was kind of vaguely based on some of the girls who'd been to see me at like, book signings and stuff, because I wanted to write about a girl who loved books, and her whole life has been lived in books. And then something very scary happens in her life that makes her actually live a real life. And I really, really love Bobby a lot. And then my editor, and it's a bit of a spoiler, she suffers in this book. It's, it's quite a scary book, and she really does get through, put through the mill. And then my editor said to me two weeks ago, she was like, you know, we think Say Her Name's going to do really well. How would you feel about doing a Say Her Name too? And my first thought was, I can't do it to Bobby. I can't put her through it. But then they talked about money, and I said, yes, I will. <laughs> I wrote a 600-page... I used to write adult novels. Um, I wrote this, my, my biggest book ever was 600 pages long. Uh, everything happened to everybody, anybody. Every, anything that could happen to you happened in that book. Because my editor had told me, oh, we've got to have something happen on every single page. Um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I had this character, Victoire, 
uh, and, and I got so fond of him that he got older and older. It, it was set in 14th century France when no one really lived beyond 30. And <laughs> there was Victor getting older and older. This is three generations living in one chateau. But Victoire went on and on. I think he was about 85 by the time I could bear to part with him. <laughs> Failure to kill off. <laughs> I kind of feel like I don't have that problem because... Because you're heartless. Uh, yeah, because I'm heartless. <laughs> the end, no. Um, I guess because like, when I come up with a character, they have got their kind of internal logic, and I don't feel like anything out of the blue is going to happen to them that doesn't like make sense for that character, if you know what I mean. So it's not like, oh, my God, like I'm really worried some random force is going to act on my character. Um, it's more about like what would that character do in that situation, and what I'm more worried about is that the character who I've created will act in a way that like is not true to themselves, and they'll be one of those characters who you're like, well, that started out as a good character, but then it just totally went off the rails and seemed like some kind of like puppet thing that the author was just pushing around. And to me, that's like the worst tragedy that can befall a character is that they start out real flesh and blood person and then become sort of hollow through overuse or underthinking or whatever. Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit heartless, actually. Um, some of my favourite characters, and there's, there's a girl who's quite young. Um, she goes through a lot of quite intense experiences in, in the second book. But um, I never get too attached to them when I start writing them out, because I'm always in the back of my mind thinking, you know, what is the worst thing that could possibly happen to this character? So I think I am quite cruel. There, there is quite a cruel streak in there, unfortunately. Yeah, you've got to be cruel to be a writer, that's um, thank you all so much for your thoughts and your honesty and your experience this evening. It's been incredibly, incredibly useful, and I know will have inspired certainly me, and I suspect everybody else to go and keep writing. We are moving on now. I'm going to hand over to Kate, but to the part of the evening we've all been waiting for, which is the prize giving. And so, with no further ado, Kate. Great. Be Who was the chair of the judges? Will I be your lovely assistant? Yeah, assistant. Katie was my lovely assistant last year, so she's going to be this year. Go over to here. Yeah. So if, if your name is called out, will you, will you come up to the stage? But Kate's going to speak for a minute. Um, yeah, so we've got um, Reflections, which is the anthology of... Um, from the uh, Reflections competition. Um, there's 12 um, finalists in it. Um, and I just wanted to first, before we present the awards, say congratulations to everyone who entered. And there are quite a few people here who entered the competition and weren't, weren't shortlisted for um, the anthology. But we've got certificates of merit for the people who we thought did brilliantly in entering and whose pieces we really enjoyed. We just couldn't fit everyone into the anthology. So after the prize giving, if the people who haven't um, one or been included in the anthology, go and um, will they be with you? I think Louise, will they be? Louise is back there will yeah. have certificates to, to give to everybody. Yeah, and they're all signed by me and Katie at First Story as well. So um, we had in the competition, I think we had about 200 entries. So I just want to say um, amazing work if you ended up being one of the winners. Um, I was a judge this year and last year, and both years I've just been like so blown away by the quality of people's work. Um, reflections is quite a funny theme, I think, because 
you know, all writing is a reflection in some way or another. Like, we happened to do our discussion today on, um, a lot of it was on character, but, you know, you could write about, like, mirrors, you could write about water, you could write about, you know, friends, whatever. Um, and so I really enjoyed reading the kind of huge range of entries and the amazing imaginations at work. So well done to everyone. Um, we've got um, a strange way of handing out the awards. So we've got runners-up for each key stage competition and then a winner for each key stage. And then we have an overall runner-up and an overall winner of the whole competition. Um, and so I'm going to first start with the key stage three runners-up. Um, and the first runner-up at key, key stage three is... And also, if I say your name wrong, just shout out that I'm an idiot and tell me the real way of, of pronouncing it. Um, so the first runner-up of key stage three is um, Kanaya Fenton. runner-up is Amna Erthan. Is she here? He? He said three. Sorry. No? Well, congratulations. (laughs) Anyway. Um, The third key stage three runner-up is Brooke Parrish Carr. competition and that is Harriet Sutton. So that's just for people who don't know, that's 14 to 16 year olds. Um, we've got Farzana Actor.
Second runner-up of the Key Stage 4 competition is Anisha Farouk. Well done. Um, next runner-up of Key Stage 4 is Kaya Job. Some of the schools aren't in London, so because the competition was open to schools like all over the UK, so that's why they might not be. Um, and the last runner-up, this is not ranked, I'm just saying last because it's the last person I'm saying, of um, the key, st- oh sorry, no, the winner of the Key Stage 4 competition, sorry, is Jamika DK. <laughs> Runner-up of the Key Stage 5 competition is Sanya Riaz. So that's judged across all the key stages. Um, so these are kind of the main prizes. Um, and the overall runner-up is Sharmin Akhtar. and also winner of the Key Stage 5 competition is Nazrat Yazdi. really gorgeous piece of writing um, and it should be in the front of the book here. Okay. Yeah, yeah, got it. Um, it's called Reflection of a Friend. She's beyond anyone I know. She's brain, de- brain and an effortless knack for everything. She's childlike and dependent and can't walk home alone. She's the girl that can't take the ill food out of her. She's a genius but, but high maintenance. She's the girl in front of the mirror pulling her hairband off again and again. 
She's the concert raver, three concerts left to go. She's the one with the bag of crunchy magic grapes for snacking in history lessons and being healthy. She's the sneaky giggles because she's conscious of her smile. She's the girl with the brilliant smile and the rock band jumpers and the odd daring dress. She's the girl who's in love with me, so I like to think. She's my desk mate and I see too much of her. She's ticking away, hiding her anger, but you can see it in her eyebrows. She's comforting and caring. She's the possible relative according to the possible mutual uncle slash dad's friend. She's gorgeous despite her dis disagreements. She's, a, she's so different to what you'd expect her to be. She's a bunch of random and handful of personalities. She's my friend and I hate to sound lame, but I'm lucky to have her. Um, that concludes the prize giving. Um, <laughs> As I said, there, we've got certificates for lots of more people who entered, and if you could join us outside for refreshments. Yeah. And I just want to thank all of you, particularly to thank the teachers who, and parents who brought you here. That's hard work. And once again, to thank our incredible panel and the LSE.